Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors, Drogheda Dundalk and Cavan. Our service departments are open with all HSC and government guidelines in place to keep you and our staff safe. Sales are click and deliver only through our website, blackstonemotors.ie. Stay safe from Blackstone Motors. You're very welcome to Late Lunch this Tuesday afternoon. I want to sort of go back to yesterday to start off and say a big thank you to Karen McConnell. Uh, She sent us in just a wee while ago there some beautiful pictures of frog spawn that she spotted out at Monk Newtown. Monk Newtown, it's near Slane in County Mead. Karen, thanks a million. They're beautiful pictures. They really are. And another place where the frogs are spawning at this time of the year. We were talking about it on the show yesterday and uh, we got lots of reaction from you. We were getting actually sightings of frog spawn right across the northeast. And uh, the Irish Peatlands Trust were delighted because they had no information of frog spawning in this neck of the woods at all so we brought it to their attention yesterday so thank you again Karen and anybody else if you're out there and you spot anything to do with frogs or spawn spawn in particular at this time of the year let us know where you've seen it take a little snap of it or anything in nature We, you know we love our nature and wildlife on late lunch so uh, don't forget the numbers you can always get in touch with us WhatsApp us 086-1800-658 you can also text me on that number if you want to call in, it's 1850-715-958. They're the numbers you need always to stay in touch with us here on LMFM Radio. <clears throat> now, another thank you at the start of the show to Loud County Council. Because I was out for my walk yesterday evening and the bins were emptied. They were emptied. So there you go. Uh, emptied yesterday, the bins. They should be emptied regularly along our streets uh, in our towns and villages. There should never, there shouldn't come a time that that has to be questioned. It should just be done. There should be a programme in place and it happens automatically. But thank you for doing that. And I hope to see that the bins are cleaned regularly now. And I know there's work going on as regards the bottle bins that were full when I went there at the weekend. So uh, we're just watching that to see what happens there with the emptying of uh, the bottle and can bins but thank you indeed to the council for acting promptly on that yesterday now on today's show we'll be talking uh, birds with Niall Hatch a little bit later on it's nesting season I continue my story of Tom Jones with a wonderful song we have Burt's Burke's banter for you oh, she's brilliant our Sinead Hugh Wallace is with me you know him don't you uh, The uh, one of the judges the main judge on Home of the Year and RTE he's on the show with us today we'll be talking about Gordon Elliott to David Jennings from the Racing Post and Father Sean McDonough is with us too. He's an environmentalist, good friend of the show. He's really concerned 
about the ethical aspect of the future of work and jobs. But first up on the show this afternoon, it is our Tuesday Tuesday regular. I'm delighted to say hello again to the head of the Department of Biology, Director of the Human, Her- Human Research Institute at Minute University, Professor Paul Miner. Hello again, Paul. Hi, Jerry. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for taking our call. Well, Paul, look, just to uh, brighten up the uh, atmosphere out there in late lunch and LMFM land, almost up to heading towards 500,000 people vaccinated, uh, hospital cases in decline, frontline staff, a lot of them getting back to work, and now they've received the vaccinations and care home cases down. The news is good, Paul. Yeah, I think we're, we're certainly heading in the right direction. So a lot of a lot of good things there, especially in terms of numbers, uh, case numbers dropping, probably not as quickly as we would like to see them, but nonetheless, they're certainly moving in the right direction. And if you look at the weekly average, week and week, they're, they're still falling. And sometimes it's, it's not really apparent, you know, as you go from day to day that they are falling, but certainly they are falling. Uh, Hospitalisations, yes, decreasing as well, and overall numbers in the hospital going down. I say vaccination over 400,000 now, I think about 130,000 already having the uh, second dose. So that's good. And obviously the vaccination is so important. So we really need to, to keep focus on that and make sure that, first of all, in terms of ensuring supply, and then as, as the vaccines come in, um, to immediately administer them. So that's key. So, But I think, you know, the skies are getting blue, Jerry. We're in springtime and mm. there's that sense of hope. And I think that's something, you know, we need to be positive and look forward and look look uh, for better times ahead, which I think there will be. Good to hear, Paul. The Johnson & Johnson, I just want to come back to that again. I know we yeah. touched on it last week. It's been approved in the USA for emergency use and it's virtually rolling out already. Uh, the European body of which we are a member of through the EU are looking at it at the moment. We're expecting the thumbs up on that. We have a lot of doses lined up there here uh, to come to this country uh, for us. And if this arrives, Paul, I was just reading about it a little more detail on it and how it's been performing in tests and that as well. We said last week a game changer despite the fact that the efficacy rate may be slightly below the other two, Pfizer, uh, BioNTech and the Moderna. Yeah, that's probably in terms of mild sort of symptoms for the disease. But Jerry, certainly if you look at the efficacy with respect to serious illness and death, you know, it's like the other is really highly efficacious. And that's the most important thing in terms of directly uh, protecting uh, people. And it's always difficult to make these comparisons. The trials are slightly different from each other. So, but nonetheless, like a vaccine like this and performing so well, like it's a really highly efficient uh, vaccine. One of the big advantages, not only in terms of, okay, it's very efficacious, uh, is its ease of, you know, storage, distribution, administration. It really opens up a lot of possibilities. In some way, Jerry, I think AstraZeneca almost has the same uh, qualities in that uh, you're, you're looking at uh, a vaccine that, again, it's very efficacious. Again, even with the first dose, it, its efficacy is very high. And it's almost like a single dose in the sense with the AstraZeneca, whereby the second dose can wait for at least six, uh, 12 weeks, up to 90 days. So again, that, that gives a lot of potential there to vaccinate a lot of people very quickly. And, you know, we, we did discuss this on last week's show. I think it's something that probably NIAC will, will probably discuss again. But certainly I would like to see some discussion around the possibility of using the AstraZeneca for those over 70s because it really does increase and, and 
like very significantly increase the rate at which we can roll out vaccines to that age group and the most vulnerable age group. So I'd like to probably see some discussion on that, and I think there probably will be, because we need to vaccinate the most vulnerable and to get those cohorts vaccinated as quickly as possible, especially where at the moment where the rate of transmission of the virus is still relatively high. We'd like to see it lower, as you said there a few mm. minutes ago, but certainly we want to vaccinate as many people as quickly as possible. And again, the advice I always give, there is all of these vaccines are exceptionally good. So really, you know, I, I would always recommend to take whatever vaccine is available because they all are really, really very effective. Absolutely. And effectiveness is, is a point. A lot of talk about, you know, uh, that we had the UK variant, which is here extensively. We know uh, South Africa mentioned in the past Brazil. And I was uh, just uh, listening, uh, watching news late last night where six uh, people arrived in Britain from Brazil and were discovered to uh, have the Brazilian uh, strain of COVID. One, they can't find Paul at all. And they're going ballistic to try and track down this person. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so obviously the variants cause concern, and the reason why they cause cause concern is the unknown. It's, it's we we don't fully appreciate in terms of the characteristics. Like some people talk about them being new viruses, not new viruses, but certainly the characteristics can be a little bit different in terms of potentially being more transmissible. We've already seen that with the UK variant and some of the other variants. For example, the South African variant may not you may not see big difference in terms of transmissibility, but there may be the potential maybe for it to bypass the uh, the vaccine but again again i'm I'm quite positive on that front jerry i i i think a line is only drawn if you see somebody who's been previously infected or vaccinated getting extremely sick with one of these variants to my knowledge that hasn't happened so far and i think this sense whereby you're going to have these variants completely bypassing the vaccine i think that's going to be difficult for the virus because as, as, and again, I sort of described this last week, when you get the vaccine, you generate an immune response against various parts of that protein, um, not just the part that you raise neutralizing antibodies against. And that's where there seems to be most concern with some of these variants that they can bypass neutralizing antibodies. But there are very many other aspects of the immune system that are also triggered that will give us protection as well. So I think sometimes... I don't know. I've just sensed over the last number of weeks, you know, in, in some places, you know, the vaccines almost have been downplayed. And, you know, this sense of, oh, we need to, you know, get down to zero and that the vaccines aren't going to work or whatever. I think we're downplaying the effectiveness of the vaccines. And I think we need to be careful here not to give the impression to people that the vaccines are not effective because that would create doubt. And I think needless doubt in some cases and may cause concern with people and question, you know, whether they actually should take the vaccine or not. So I think there's a fine balance to be got there. So I think everyone needs to be responsible in terms of commenting and evaluating that. Uh, it's really good to hear that, Paul, and that's sound advice for everybody listening to you today. Now, schools are easing back, and I was delighted to see the children arriving in our area yesterday, going back into school. The good weather the weekend, Paul, and it's continued this weekend and will into next weekend. Parks are busy. People are out walking. It's outdoors. And I suppose, you know, it's very hard to put um, a cap on that or, or to ask people not to do that, to be out and about. Yeah, I've, I've always thought, Jerry. I, I think sometimes the approach has been quite absolutist. What, what I mean by that, Jerry, is almost like for, for these, especially the shock that we got at Christmas in terms of numbers going, that there seemed to be reluctance to uh, remove and to loosen up on any of the restrictions. Mm. And I, I've, I've sort of thought, especially over the last couple of weeks, especially as the weather gets nicer and better, 
that maybe we should look at some of the restrictions where loosening them would be very low risk. I don't think we'll ever get to zero risk, but certainly when I look at activities, outdoor activities, you know, where you can maintain that sort of separation. But I, 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 and I've looked at the literature and I've tried to look at the literature to see are there any examples of super spreading event, events that have taken place outside? I, I haven't been able to pick up any reported in the literature. So I think the the chances, especially whether it's distancing, you know, and people being responsible, the chances of, you know, super spreading events outside is very, very low. So I think we should begin to look at those restrictions and not being irresponsible again, but looking at those that we can lift and to give people, you know, some relief and some hope and see that we're certainly moving in, in the right direction. We probably will see, I would expect to see that over the next couple of weeks. But but I look at outdoor activities that I would regard as being very, very low risk. You know, something even something like golf, for example, where you're in very large sort of open spaces and you're not getting close to people. So some of those things, it's almost like where we feel the need to close everything down and that everything, you know, together and that solidarity. But at the same time, I think we need to be mindful of people's mental health and uh, yeah, looking at those uh, relatively low risk, you know, uh, decisions that we can make that doesn't introduce very significant risk. That's uh, something I hope that the government do look at, especially I know I see the logic, Paul, with St. Patrick's Day coming and Easter to try and manage through that and ask people to hold on. But after that, what you say there, there should be hope given golf, you know, two balls and a golf course, a fishing I do a bit myself. Don't mind within the restrictions that could go ahead. Training, you know, for youngsters uh, with strict, you know, distancing, etc. Look, that has to be looked at and there has to be hope given to people. I couldn't agree with you more there. Just one thing I want to say to you because it's come up in the conversation uh, you will be aware with Luke O'Neill and others. In your position and uh, where you have been to the fore in national and and local media of course in the last year, have you received any negativity Paul? Not not, not really, certainly not to the extent so I I know Luke very well, he's a very good friend so you know I'd be in regular contact with Luke and I know Luke has spoken about this sort of in the media probably over the last number of days. Now, I would have been aware because, you know, and actually one of the ones that he detailed, I think he detailed it last night on the Claire Byrne show, and he spoke about one incident over in Galway. I was actually at that. So Luke and myself were on the same panel, actually. It was over at the Galway International Arts Festival. And afterwards, I did witness that where on the way out, there were some anti-vaxxers there demonstrating, protesting. And, I, and again, like Luke was very high profile, you know, and so, you know, he he was targeted and, you know, was very unpleasant uh, and certainly, you know, he's there with his wife, Margaret, and, you know, it was very uh, unpleasant and, you know, from, from their perspective, quite, quite scary. Um, so I, I haven't received much, like sometimes you get common, Jerry, in terms of sometimes, you know, whether we go on various shows or and we're asked to talk about science and inevitably sometimes we're asked maybe to comment and it's maybe more opinion and whether it be in terms of restrictions or whatever. And sometimes you get into a situation where you probably are talking about things that maybe are outside your immediate area of expertise, but you know, you're giving an opinion. So sometimes, you know, you might get some criticism on that front. But certainly, no, I, I haven't really got, and in fact, you know, generally the response I've got is very positive. I do take it seriously, Jerry, in the sense that it just so happens that my area of expertise has fallen in this area, you know, infectious diseases, viral immunity, you know, and immune responses. And so it, it's in my field. And 
I think there is sort of a responsibility there in terms of, you know, communicating with the public. And certainly, you know, we do the best that we can. Just in the case of Luke, what I would say, Jerry, and people, I'm not sure if they realise this, but, you know, he is such a fantastic communicator and he really has this ability to, to get across, you know, complex messages. Yeah. In, in, in a way that people can really understand what a lot of people may not uh, realise, but in terms of you know his scientific standing, he really is on a, on a global stage. Like in terms of his specific area of expertise, like he is one of the top in the world. And I'm not sure if people actually realise you know his standing, his scientific standing in the world. And, and the other thing is he's been a fantastic. Probably the public would have just seen Luke over the last, you know, number of months, the last twelve months or so. Certainly, the scientific world. I've always felt that Luke has done a fantastic, like, ambassadorial role for Ireland, for science, for research, and outside of Ireland, you know, he has that reputation, and he's done fantastic work for representing Ireland and, you know, its its scientific community. So, um, so I, I, it's a shame then to see, you know, people like Luke being targeted. He he truly is somebody who is very knowledgeable, has that reputation, and is a real, real uh, substance. But but I think, in fairness, Jerry, the reaction that Luke gets and the esteem that he's held in is by the majority of people, like so, so many people. And I I meet so many people and would often mention Luke and perhaps know that I, I know him and things like that. And it's by far, by far, it's a tiny minority, you know, that, but, but, Sometimes it can be a very unpleasant one, not only for himself, but also his family. And uh, we uh, saw uh, the manifestation of that in Dublin at the weekend. And it's important to say again that the vast majority of people in this country uh, live by the science, what Neffet says, and take direction and doing their very best. We want to say that the other is in the minority, and that is a fact. And Paul, I just want to say to you two things before you go. I'm sure you'd love to go back to your quiet life. We are not in the focus, and I think that would be a real sign that we're on top of this. But I want to say here from myself, uh, thank you for being such a rock of sense and uh, explaining to us week in, week out here over the last year uh, where we are and where we hope to be and hopefully where we will go with COVID. I know so many of our listeners mention it to me that they love to hear from you each week in the show. And we do appreciate you. You are our Luke O'Neill, Paul Moyna. Thank you so much. You're you're, you're very kind, Jerry. I appreciate that a lot. Not at all. And we'll be talking to you, I'm sure, uh, a week hence. Paul, thank you for the moment. You're more than welcome. Thanks, Jerry. Take care of yourself. That's uh, Paul Moynihan, the head of the Department of Biology, director of the Human Research Institute at Maynooth University. A wonderful, wonderful guy. You're with Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. There's only one story in town at the moment. It's all over the place and it's just rolling on. Yes, the picture was posted over the weekend of Gordon Elliott sitting on the dead horse and, well, all hell has broken loose since. I'm joined on the line by fellow Meath horse trainer, Ger Lines from Dunsany. Hello, Ger. Hi, Jerry. How are you? Uh, I'm good, thanks. Thank you so much for taking our call today. First off, I, I, I ask you to comment on the photograph and Gordon sitting sitting on the horse. What's your reaction to it? Yeah, the same as everybody else's. It's, listen, the industry is demoralised at the moment. It's just something we didn't need. Um, there's no condoning it. There's no excuse for it. Gordon's put his hands up. He's apologised. And it's, it's, all he can, it's all the man can do, you know. Um, uh, it's just disappointing. Mm. It's been a tough time for racing uh, recently. It's one blow after another. And obviously you're feeling it too, Jer. 
A hundred percent. You know, we're always, you know, the one word I hate is perception. And like through the lockdown, we were always advised, oh, you have to wear this or you do this for perception, 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 you know, and it's a dreadful word in my opinion. But I think perspective is the most important word at the moment. Um, And like, I was angry when I seen it. I was annoyed. I was sick. I was upset. Went to bed last night after seeing the six o'clock news. I was upset. I was annoyed. I said, the racing doesn't need this. But I got up this morning and the first thing I thought about was Gordon. I thought, you know, the man didn't kill anybody. He didn't do this. He didn't do that. And we just have to draw a line under it. He's put his hands up. Um, and we need to put it behind us. It's not that easy, I know. I understand all of that. But somebody puts their hand up and they apologise. Um, I think we should move on, mm. you know. Um, there's a human being at stake here as well. Mental health issues at stake. Like, we're all busy in our industry or in in in. in sport in general or even in life in general busy talking about mental health issues especially in the lockdown um so i'm all i'm saying is you know something guys enough is enough you know this man is feeling it like you can only imagine what he's feeling like um just just leave it alone now and you know enough's been said enough's been done put Mm. it to bed and he's uh there's a hearing i know on friday and of course he's uh been uh Hit hard already in the the UK with no runners over there for the uh, foreseeable future. And we're hearing just in the last hour that some people who have horses with him have moved them to other trainers. So really his world is falling apart. Yeah, but he hopefully he still has his health. I mean, yeah. uh, the hearing, I, I didn't know it was on on Friday. My I don't understand. He put his hands in the air. He admitted his culpability. I don't understand why it takes so long. Um, I think we need leadership from our authorities and we need swift leadership. Now, dragging it out to Friday, it's another full week. I personally don't understand why it can't have been sorted before that, uh, if not yesterday, at least by today. Um, Find him, him, ban him, whatever whatever it is. But uh, don't be dragging it out. Um, For me, there's too much litigious... uh, people involved in our turf club um you know there's many judges many solicitors many barristers as our as our as our daytime stewards and it's gone very much that way where where they're afraid to do anything for fear of being sued and at some point as i said earlier we need leadership you need to stand up and make a decision and make it sharp and swift and then everybody knows where they stand i'm all for zero tolerance and if you if you lead from the from the top uh, with zero tolerance in mind, um, people know where they stand. And who are you, you calling? Know. Who are you directing that comment there at, in particular? Uh, well, our leadership is the yes. CEO is Dennis Egan. They, you know, he, the, yeah. the book stops with him mm. and his and his board. So instead of always coming out and fudging it or, or 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 not, you know, you know, we're under investigation. We can't say anything while we're under investigation. In this particular incident. I mean, I don't know, you know, I don't know why they can't get it done, at least by today. Mm. I don't know why they have to carry on dragging it out, you know. But listen, they have the hearing on Friday. Um, It's just another week of bad news that racing doesn't need, you know. Yeah. Um, 
I hear what you're saying and our, our listeners do too and I, I, look he's going to be dealt with he's going to be punished he's been punished already and will be punished more and he put his hands up and said I will accept that and he has to carry this for the rest of his days but you know there is a thing in life as well and you it's get, just become more and more prominent, not just with this man now, but as you know, Jer, in other aspects of life where everyone pours in with no thought or consideration for what you mentioned about the man, the person behind it and the mental health and the consequences that can ensue. He'll take his punishment, he's put his hands up and he should be punished and what he did was wrong. We all agree on that, I think. Uh, but there should be a line drawn then and life has to move on and things have to move on as well. Uh, look, it, it's it's great to talk to you. I really do appreciate it. You've come forward and uh, said what you had to say. And uh, we'll see where this goes over the next few days. Um, for yourself again, you know, the, racing will recover for the, from this. It'll move on. Listen, racing has recovered from all sorts of nonsense over the years before my time and will after my time. It's just demoralising to be in it. Um, to be always seemingly facing into headwinds, you know. Um, I know I grew up when racing was was liked <laughs> and now we seem to be in an era where it's not liked um, for whatever reason I mean we grew up in an era when you weren't supposed to so- associate with bookmakers yet now trainers and jockeys are sponsored by bookmakers I mean the whole thing is about face and I think a lot of it has started and it's getting on a different issue but a lot of it started since we were allowed bet to lose you know there's a lot of all of that which is a whole different debate but um the game it, it just we just need to we just need leadership Jerry simple as mm. and we're only as good as our leader and at the moment we're being weakly led and, th- and that point you make there just uh, before we finish to mention that do you believe it's wrong that trainers and jockeys can be sponsored by betting companies 100% okay that's good to hear that's interesting to hear so it is really interesting to hear yeah, th- so you see a conflict there there is Completely. I mean, you don't have to be rocket science to figure that one out. Mm. Um, but it's it's the, the world is a different place now than when I started in the game. But it's not something. I'm not a betting man, so it's not the it, part of the game that I'm involved in and don't understand it. Don't pretend to understand it. But I do think there's a, a huge conflict there. Ger, mm. listen, you're a good man, and I appreciate your time on late lunch today. And I take on board all you have to say there. And uh, let's uh, hope that this matter is put to bed sooner rather than later for the better of all concerned. Ger Lines, appreciate it. Thanks a million. Cheers, Jerry. Well, Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Gerald Lyons, a uh, horse trainer from Dunsany in County Mead. Interesting things to say, hadn't he? Uh, about uh, the... Uh, the top brass in racing and he's quite clear there you know uh, sponsorship uh, of uh, trainers and jockeys by betting companies you heard what the man himself had to say there um, and uh, look that's uh, one that will be debated I'm sure by all involved in the game in the future again I say the picture was totally wrong and you know I know people who work with animals sure I told you before in the past my father we were reared with greyhounds and racing greyhounds as well and we loved them and there were tough times, etc. But your love is for the animal is is just paramount, so it is. Gordon let himself down. He let the game down completely and he knows it. And he is on the full front of uh, all that's coming his way at this point in time 
And, uh, you know, there is a man, there is a human being behind it as well. It's something we do have to keep in mind. Thank you indeed for all your messages to the show. If you want to join in the conversation, say anything, remember the numbers 086-1800-658. That's 086-1800-658. That's the WhatsApp or text number directly to me here in studio. Or you can call in on 1857 Jerry says a listener, we should be allowed to walk at the seaside. We always loved it. I ask, please. I agree with Paul. Let's get over the 5K. Please, please, says a listener. Uh, another one there. Uh, just a little point. I'm all for golf clubs reopening, says Eamon, and training for the youngsters. But the open spaces is not the problem. It's the locker room and showers. Well, Eamon, I can tell you as a golfer, last time it opened up, there was no access to locker rooms or showers. You couldn't go into the clubhouse. I'm a member of County Loud. It was closed. You arrived in your car, got your clubs, out to play, back in home. And that's the way it will be when it reopens as well. There won't be locker rooms or, cl- or uh, clubhouses or showers or anything like that, Eamon, just to clarify. Thank you indeed for your comment. If golf courses open, Jerry, what about all the members who are outside the 5K zone? 5K, if it's 5K, you play if you're in 5K. And that wasn't adhered to the last time. But I'd say they'll open up the distance when they do open up the golf courses as well. Hopefully that'll happen after the 5th of April. Uh, just got my prize from last week's is Gwen Cairns. Thank you so much, Jerry. Love the show. Thanks, Gwen. Lovely to hear from you. Uh, another one there from Deirdre and Navin. She says, I think what happened with Gordon Elliott, Jer- Jerry, was horrible. But is there an agenda? Why is this photo only being published now, just before Cheltenham and Aintree? Thank you, Deirdre, for that one. And Peter's back on the conspiracy theorists. Thank you, Peter. I love your messages. Keep them coming to me, but I've no interest in reading them to the listeners. Thank you very much indeed. Now we move on on late lunch this afternoon. Father Sean McDonough. He is a brilliant priest, an environmentalist. He's been campaigning for this planet and the environment and warning us for years and years. He's been with me a number of times on the show. Well, a little earlier on today, I caught up with Sean and he's written a brilliant new book, thought-provoking. It's called Robots, Ethics and the Future of Jobs. And I began by asking Sean, in all the work he's done, why has he, atur- has he turned his attention to the subject of work and jobs? Back in the 1980s, I was very much involved in the Catholic Church. We were opening the whole area of ecology and climate change and biodiversity. So uh, I'm looking around for where do I think things are happening that are very important for shaping our modern world. And so about four years ago, I read a document by two scientists from Oxford saying that they've looked at jobs, uh, about 702 jobs, and they asked in 20 years, will they be automated? And they came up with the, with the reality that about, about 40% of people will not have jobs in the future because a very, a very simple thing called Moore's Law. And Moore's Law tells us that we double our digital capacity every four or five years. Now, that's an, an awesome thing. So you're talking about from the beginning of the 1960s, we're going to double that. And that's, that's going to create all kinds of issues that are now on us in the whole area of hospitality, banking, finance, farming, looking after children, all of these. And 3D printing is going to change the whole structure of an economy globally in the future. Because since World War II, for example, rich countries uh, were sending out their clothes. You go into any, any clothes shop today, most of them are made in Bangladesh because the wages are cheaper there. But that's going to change dramatically with, with 3D printing 
and, and is changing already. So this is a huge change, and it's been driven by power and money. And there's very little concerns for, for example, for people like yourselves, uh, local radio stations, or the print media. And we see actually, at this very moment, uh, Facebook have actually turned on Australia and unfriended them and taken all their stuff off Facebook in Australia. So these are very serious issues. So this is a very serious country. Australia, for 24, 25 million people, are taken on by a big company that is now a monopoly. And they need to be broken up because there's three or four of these companies. They are the ones who are dictating. And it's not being dictated by my privacy or dictated by something that will benefit me or humanity. It's been benefited by their them making a lot of profits. And they've made huge profits on people like yourselves who do the local work in an area, generate the news, and then... They use it without paying you your, your proper share for it. Yes, it's interesting you mentioned that, Sean, and it is a huge issue for our industry. Can I come back to what you're saying? Because progress, in my view, when I look at it, is like a juggernaut, and especially in this whole area you're talking about. Sean, how can we slow it? Do we need to slow it? What do we need to do to stop this? Because this seems inevitable. Will we create jobs in other areas? What will happen? To put context on it, when I was working among the Tiboli, uh, I wanted to call my mother uh, every month because my father had died before I came back. So that meant a two-day journey. Uh, sometimes it would take five hours, sometimes seven hours if the bus broke down. When I would arrive in Davao, because that was the only city in Mindanao that had an external uh, telephone line, I would have already booked. And it was very expensive. Like to call for 10 minutes could cost you up to $70. And you would be in there, you'd be halfway through the conversation, and the thing would go down. I'm regularly talking to uh, those in in Lake Cebu. Yesterday, I had a long conversation. So I'm not saying these are bad things. But you're asking me what we need to be done. The Australian government is the first government. They want regulation. People like Facebook, Twitter, they have no problem with fines. You can find them a, a million dollars. That's out of the top pocket for them. But they don't want to be regulated. Now, if everybody else didn't want to be regulated, we, we, we wouldn't have a society. We need, actually, regulation. And in the 19th century, with capitalism in, in full flight, governments like the United States broke up monopolies in, in, in the railways, in the steel and industry. And we need to do the same now. And we haven't done it. If we don't do it, they will be the ones who will make a lot of money and a lot of us will be very, very poor into the future. And that's not something I would like to see. For example, how would a a country like Ireland cater with the fact that maybe 35 or 40 percent of its people, well educated, cannot find jobs, you know? Come back to drones and robots and the printing that you mentioned there earlier. Like, they're separate to the online, the Facebooks and the Twitters and that. What about that area, the way jobs go? Well, see, the point I'm saying is, if you take, for example, the, the, the chapter uh, on, on, uh, on transport, OK, and you're talking about uh, transport in the context of Moore's Law, of doubling your digital capacity every four or five, three or four or five years. So... In looking at over 20 years, for example, at the moment, there are 4 million people driving trucks across the United States, bringing goods and services here, there and everywhere. And there's about 15 million people who support that. For example, 20 years from now, the vast majority of those were automated. What happens to those 20 million people? That's the issue I'm actually raising. And that's just one of those. For example, I recently had an operation in my eye. 
cataract in my eye. And I gave the example of an algorithm in Belgium where people, uh, 12 people were chosen, uh, six people went to eye surgeons and six went to algorithms. And actually the people who went to al- algorithms had a, had a better outcome because they, they don't move even the slightest of it. Even the best surgeon, their hand will move just a slight amount. So these are good things, but they, they are, there are implications for it. And I think we need to take those seriously and have a society talking about, do we want to be driven by money? Like, for example, the first Industrial Revolution created an appalling situation that government and even churches did not take seriously. You talk about in the 1750s on, if you were in Manchester and went working in the, in the factory when you were 14 years of age, you'd be dead at 37. And that was through, right through the 19th century. Now, it was only in the 20th century when unions came in that people were given uh, decent conditions of work and also decent conditions of pay. And these are the issues I wanted to see brought in now today. It will only be decided by regulation and ethical issues. That's what I want to see it. So you say, Sean, really, we are morally obliged to provide gainful employment and as many good and decently paid jobs as possible, not eliminating them. Because I take it from elimination, and if you have all these millions of people with little to do, they have to be supported, and idle time on the hands is not good. The title of my, uh, my book is Robots, Ethics and the Future of Jobs. I didn't say the future of work. Every diocese in Ireland goes out to the sea. I'm a, a World War II baby. And humans have done more damage to the sea in the last 75 years than they did for 3 billion years before that. We are wiping out the sea. Uh, plankton actually creates 50% of the oxygen that you breathe. And its levels has gone down 40% in the last 40 years. In, in terms of, of extinction of species, we know, even in our own country, that insects are under enormous pressure at the moment. And one third of our food comes from pollination. There is a lot of work to be done. And that's why I have a, a chapter on basic income. And a lot of this work could be done and people will be paid for it. I live here at the moment and was brought up here in a town in North Tipperary. And we had industry here in the past. But in general, a lot of people had to go to Dublin or go to London or go to New York. Now, if you had a basic income, but you have some money coming in to, to your household for your basic needs of food, clothing and shelter. And then you could decide to do something else which would be very creative and actually make you a bit of money. So I think it would be very good for local environments as against the city environments. And in a sense, the present pandemic has shown us a bit of the way you can work from home. So these are going to change things dramatically. But all I want is an ethical voice into that mix. My concern is the well-being of humanity and the well-being of the planet. You can't have the well-being of humanity if the the planet has gone down the, the drain. We're destroying the oceans and we're destroying life on Earth. Yes, uh, Father Sean McDonough there speaking to me a little earlier on and you will be able to hear an extended version of that interview uh, where he talks about the pandemic and the link to environmental destruction on our podcast, the show's podcast. Uh, about an hour in the hour following uh, our live broadcast here, you'd be able to pick up the podcast on lmfm.ie <clears throat> and it's under late lunch uh, playback there. So that will be available. I have a copy of Father Sean's book, Robot ethics and the future of jobs to give away it really is brilliant it's thought-provoking well worth a read you'll enjoy it i promise would you like my copy i'll give it away to one of you today all you have to do is whatsapp or text me with the word robots 
spelt backwards. Spell the word robots backwards and include your name and details and I'll give that book to somebody on Late Lunch this afternoon. It's a terrific read, I promise you. You're with Late Lunch on LMFM Radio and reminding you again today to support local. If you're out shopping, support local. If you're online, buy local as well. Local businesses employ our family and friends. They're at the heart of our communities. They've supported us over the years in charity ventures and sport and more besides. Shop local at this time. Online or in person, it's more important than ever. You're at Late Lunch on LMFM Radio this Tuesday afternoon. Welcome to the show if you're just joining us and whether you're listening on your smart speaker, the app, online or on radio, you're very welcome to the show. Short break and afterwards, yes, he's spoken to the man himself. He's spoken to Gordon Elliott. We're joined by David Jennings from the Racing Post. We spoke to uh, Mead trainer Ger Lyons near the top of the show, the Gordon Elliott story. It's rolling along as uh, we are on air here this afternoon and uh, different things happening with it. But the man who spoke to Gordon Elliott is joining us now. He's a good friend of ours on LMFM Radio and Late Lunch. I've spoken to him on a number of occasions through the years. He's a journalist and Deputy Irish Editor of the Racing Post. I'm delighted to say hello again to David Jennings. Hi, David. Hi, Derry. Thank you very much for taking our call today. You've spoken to him. Gerline said earlier he's worried for the man's mental health. He's made a huge mistake. It's time to draw a line and move on. Will a line be drawn? How is he? You've spoken to him. Yeah, it was it was a harrowing experience there yesterday down at Colentra House, um, Jerry. Um, it's 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 a scary place where he is now. Um, his whole life has been destroyed at the moment, and. As he said in the piece in the Racing Post, Jerry, when your world is crumbling down around you, it's a scary place to be. And look, we can't, I can't, you can't, Gordon can't defend what he did. It was a ridiculous moment of madness, an indefensible moment of madness. He summed it up perfectly in the piece he did with me himself. And he will regret it for the rest of his life. He is going to be punished for this for the rest of his life. And it's got to the stage now where his actual life has been destroyed. I want to read the words just from your brilliant piece in the Racing Post. Just these few lines, and it does sum it up, as you said. Uh, When your world starts crumbling in front of you, it's a scary place to be. I just hope people can understand how truly sorry I am and find some way to forgive me for what I have done. And that really are the words of a man who in my book, when I read it, is genuine in his remorse for, for what has happened. Look, can I ask you just something? Maybe you know none of this. Is this, you know, people thought it was photoshopped when it appeared first. And in fairness to him, he came out and put his hands up and said, no, that picture is real. It is me. Many might have tried to cover up or, or run from it. When was it taken? Is it a recent picture? No, it's two years ago, Jerry. 2019, the horse in question is a horse called Morgan, who uh, was owned by Michael and Eddie O'Leary's Giganstein House Stud. Uh, suffered a heart aneurysm on the gallops and um, in the process of the uh, horse tractor or whatever machinery was used to bring the horse away, in that process he was holding the horse and he received a phone call and he sat down. It is absolutely ridiculous, it's indefensible, it is you know, something that we will never be able to defend and he will never be able to defend it. But that's what happened and for those 5, 10, 2 seconds, for those Two, five, ten seconds, his whole career is now looking like it's ruined. And are we at that stage, really, to say that his stable, his future as a trainer, with all he's achieved in the past, his connections in the game, it could be over? Well, in the last, I think, 20 minutes, Jerry, the news broke that Chibli Park stood one of his biggest owners, the owners of Envoy LN, who's 
the 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 you would say the the big kid on the block in racing. He has moved to Henry de Bromhead. All the Giggins are all the the Shively Park horses. I think there's eight of them. But when you hear eight, you say ah, eight out of couple of hundred or whatever. That's not much. These horses are the elite of the elite. Envoy Allen at the moment is the most promising horse in training. He's odds on for a race at Cheltenham. He has never been beaten in his life. This horse is the apple of Gordon Elliott's eye, and he had to receive a phone call this morning from Sheevely Park and their representation to say that these horses were moving to his biggest rivals, the people who he's been competing against for the last decade, and those horses are gone. Sir Gerhard, Quixilios, and as I said, Envoy Allen. And I think, I say when that phone, when he received that phone call this morning from, from Sheevely Park stood, I think that perhaps was the moment when he really realised this is not good whatsoever. He obviously realised it yesterday, but you know when you you fear something like that, like that might happen, but when you actually hear it happening and when you know there's a truck coming to collect those horses at whatever time today, it must be just gut-wrenching for him. And as I said, we can't defend him. We can't. It was mm. a stupid, ridiculous thing to do. And, and you know what, Jerry? I think that's almost part of if we call it the grieving process, like, you know, sometimes when you can make excuses for things and it kind of helps you to get over them. And when you actually can't make an excuse because you say, look, it was, it was indefensible. It was, it was a moment of madness and it must be so hard for him to get his head around it all. And like I spoke to him yesterday and the man had tears rolling down his face talking to me. Like it was just Mm. Like, it's a racing story, obviously, but it goes much deeper than that. That's a human story, of course it is, David, and you saw that firsthand yourself. Where did the picture come from? Who posted it? That's what we don't know, Jerry. You know, we don't know. And there's an IHRB um, hearing on Friday, and they obviously will have, I suppose, access to more information than we do, and they'll be the one doing the digging and the investigation to see exactly where it came from. who knows, Jerry? The way social media is at the minute, you know, there's mm. anonymous accounts. There is nobody knows, and and that's obviously that's a, that's a, that's a scary thing as well. And I I suppose it just tells us the way the modern era is, Jerry. That something like that it should never have happened, and I can't say that enough, Jerry. This should never have happened, and yeah. the reputation of the racing industry is 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 tarnished because of this. So it should never have happened, and like you can't condone it at all, but. The one thing that, like, that, that you have to, to probably say is that if this happened 10, 15, 20 years ago, we'd never hear a thing about it. But that's not making excuses. I'm just yeah. pointing out yes. the modern era. Oh, no, look, we, I was talking about it here yesterday, just how uh, lethal it is. And something uh, done at any stage now that's recorded can reappear and really bite you. What is he looking at? Like, the, the withdrawal of those horses is a huge sanction in itself. But w- he can't race in the UK. How long is that to be for? And what other sanctions could he face here at home? Okay, well, so at the moment, the BHA, who's the British Horse Racing Authority, uh, made a statement yesterday to say that he would not be allowed to run horses in Britain until the outcome of this hearing was made. Okay, so basically that means nothing because Mm. he had no entries in Britain this week. So the hearing is Friday. He wasn't going to have runners in Britain this week. That doesn't make any difference. So what happens now is the hearing from the IHRB is on Friday and the outcome of that hearing will... Depend will will, dep- will state whether he will have runners at Cheltenham or whether he won't have runners at Cheltenham. Whether his license will be taken off him, whether it won't be taken off him, whether he will get a, a fine or or what the punishment will be. And it's a very tricky one, Jerry, because what punishment fits this crime? Like when does 
when does punishment turn to destruction? And it's 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 just such a horrible, horrible case because you're not only talking about Gordon Jerry, you're talking about eighty staff, you're talking about their livelihoods, you're talking about their wives, their husbands, their kids. This is their livelihoods at stake. And like as I said, you cannot defend what he did. But if you ever paid a visit to Calentra House, like I've been in stables up and down the country, it is amazing. It's like you know. The Europe Hotel in Killarney for horses. That's mm. what it's like. It is yes. the most gorgeous place. There's a swimming pool. He has massage place for the horses. He has padding on stables. He has the best of the best. He's invested the best in the best because he realised to get to where he is, to get to the top, you need to look after these horses like they are your kids. And that's what he did. And I think that's the bit that hurts him the most, Jerry. It's that people are now saying that Gordon Elliott is cruel to horses. He doesn't treat his horses with respect. He does this, he does that. And deep down in the pit of his stomach, he's saying to himself, oh my God, I've given my whole life to horses and I've nurtured them and cared for them. Horses like NYLN, who, uh, like, I just can't imagine how amazingly that horse is treated. To go out and never be beaten in a race, you have to be in the peak of your physical health to be able to win races every single day. And he's done that. And now people are saying, hold on a second, you're cruel to animals. Like, it must be just the most horrible feeling. You know when you're told you're good at... You think deep down and you know you're good at something and then for somebody and everybody and people to ridicule them on social media and Mm. in the press to say, no, actually you're not. It must be just horrendous. Yeah. It's important to point out that the horse did die from a heart attack, was dead at the time. It's insensitive, it's crass, it's all that type of thing. But I don't think you can associate it by inference with cruelty, to be honest. And everything you've said there bears out the man's love for the for his animals over the years. And I think as well, just before you go, David, of all the people he employs and the people, uh, the knock-on from his stables there in County Meath and beyond, uh, you know, the implications for this are huge for many, many, many people. David, I know you're on top of your head today with Cheltenham on the way. Just one quick word. Uh, Tiger Roll not going to go in the Grand National for three in a row because of the weight. No surprise. Yeah, well, I don't know about that. Um, I was surprised. Were you? <laughs> I, I was, yeah. Um, you know, I suppose a horse with a chance to create history, you know, yeah. to emulate Red Rum. Like, we're still, still talking about Red Rum these days and this horse had a chance to, to, to do that again. You know, it's 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 just unfortunate, I suppose, the timing of everything yes. and everything. But they've obviously felt that, you know, the horse mm. was not fairly treated by the British handicapper. Yes. They, think yes. the, they think that the British handicapper is handicapping him and giving him the weight in a race and his reputation rather than his form. And they've decided to do that. So it's well in the right. And it's just unfortunate. It is. It's, it's just, a pity. It's just it's been a, a very unfortunate week. Oh, stop, David. Stop. Don't get us going on that one at all. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. And reminding everybody, Racing Post, read David. He's brilliant. Thanks for joining me on the show. Pleasure, Jerry. Take care. David Jennings there speaking to me about the Gordon Elliott story that I'm sure will roll on for the rest of this week and beyond. Dusty Springfield. She was my featured artist of the week already this year. She passed away 22 years ago this very day. And I think it's appropriate that we remember her with this one. It's brilliant. John was listening to my uh, interview with Jer Lyons earlier on in the show and he said Jer was really compassionate towards Gordon and the point was made correctly that the link between uh, jockeys, trainers 
and the bookies is wrong. I enjoyed the interview immensely. Loved the show. Thanks indeed for getting in touch with us this afternoon. Now, it returned recently for its seventh series and it is so popular right across the country and in our house in particular. Oh, you couldn't say a word, to be honest with you, when it's on. What am I talking about? Home of the Year on RTE. There's two new judges, but there's one ever-present and he's joining me now. He's an architect and founding partner of Douglas Wallace Consultants. I'm delighted to say hello to Hugh Wallace. Hello, Hugh. A very big hello this afternoon. Well, our house is just thrilled, I can tell you again, that I'm talking to you today. They said, what? (laughs) You're talking to Hugh tomorrow? They're all tuned in and listening today, so I'm really under pressure at this stage. So help me out, if you will. Anyway, may I ask you? Well, first of all, congratulations, seven series. It just shows you how popular it is. How is it with the two new ladies? The, the new judges, um, Susie and, and Amanda, are just fabulous. And, you know, they bring that little choix de vivre, that style, that panache, and also some vicious nails. So, <laughs> it's all good. Look, you, uh, over the years, the ingenuity, the creativity of Irish people, and it doesn't have to be all the time big and grand, but down to the wee ones. Look at last week's. Wasn't it just something else, the wee house? It's amazing, isn't it, with the ability, talent and vision that's out there? Oh, it's just wonderful. And I'd have to say over the seven years, it's just improved. It's got better and better, and I think that's because people, you know, are being inspired. They're looking at programs, they're looking at Instagram, and they're going, oh, I'd like a bit of that. Mm. And particularly with COVID. Yes, you know, of the course. Lockdown. Yeah, of course. Oh, you're someone, look, who's been years in this game. You're so experienced now into year seven. Are you continually uh, surprised by what you see and at the different takes and innovations? Oh, I, I, I tell you, I, you see, we don't, people don't believe this, but we don't get to see the houses. We stand outside, the mics are put on us, and we get all a bit giddy. Mm. And, and then the door opens. And that's the first time we see the house. Really? And, yeah, and so the, today, when we go and look at a house, and that door opens, you just go, oh my goodness, <laughs> look at this. Isn't this fabulous? Isn't it just you know, OTT, completely over the top, you know, and and it's just terrific. And because the three of us have different views and, and you know, like different things, you know, we get quite spirited and excited and quite honest about projects. And, you know, some of the houses you go, well, it's not for me, but that doesn't matter because it's a great home. It's a great family home. Isn't and that, that's what we're looking for. Isn't that great to know that our view is your view for the first time as well? So there you are, folks. I've learned something is, myself yeah. today. There Honestly. you go. Honestly. Now, this evening, I just see you're uh, focusing on a converted mill apartment in County Antrim, a semi-detached family home in Limerick. But the one we're curious about is in the Wee County, County Loud, Olive Wilson's and Fergal's home in County Loud. Can you give us a little preview or taste of it? Well, it, it's a, an amazing home. Basically, it's a, it's a new build for, for, for better words because all that was left was a couple of outside walls. And 
It, it very much, uh, as you approach it, has sort of an, Amer- an American vibe going on in the house. And then inside, lovely big entrance hall. It's all bright, lots of sunlight coming in, very nicely laid out. And it's a real, you know, it's a really tastefully done. And the best bit has to be the master bedroom with the dressing room, the, the ensuite and the dressing, you know, a, a makeup area. So it's like, it is <laughs> like going into a five-star hotel. It's just fabulous. And Olive, obviously, she's in, uh, works as an interior designer, so you can see her stamp on the place all over. Absolutely, absolutely. And it is about attention to detail and those crafty, creative moments. And you'll see that in Olive's house. You know, it's, it's super, and the connection with the garden... And the garden is, is facing west. So it gets all the sunlight in the evening. Lovely. And lovely. it's a real sort of indoor-outdoor house. Mm. OK, so a lot to look forward to on the local front tonight. And you're on 8.30 RTE1. Absolutely. And now, go on. looking forward for another season. Yeah, and it, I just looked at the, the breakdown. Eight weeks of the show, 21 homes uh, you'll be visiting before the overall winner is chosen. Do you dominate? Now, I know you said about the girls and their nails, but come on, Hugh, let's be honest. Mm. Uh, It's your decision in the end, is it? You're the boss. You're the experienced one. (laughs) You must be joking. With Amanda, (laughs) you know. Nobody's safe with her. (laughs) I I have to tell you that. You know, know, but that's... It, it's great fun, and there's some. There's uh, the first two two uh, shows were quite nice. We everybody was nice to one another, but the gloves sort of come off. Oh, oh yay! I love it. Oh, there's more juice in this this evening. It's going to ramp up as the weeks go on. Look, Correct. tell me, tell me a couple of things. You know, coming to a decision, it is detente. Everyone has their say. You vote, and it works out like that at the end of the day. In the years that you've you know chosen the ultimate home of the year out of the last six you know you're in series seven have you picked the one yourself in every series or uh, except for one oh except for one there you go that's not bad one out of six yeah, uh, I can hear Meatloaf bad. recording a new version of his song yeah. one out of six ain't bad <laughs> uh, for Hugh Wallace uh, and the other thing while you're with me it's something that I wanted to say to you um you know when you go into some house and you have to slip the shoes off and yes. put something on the feet? What do you make of that? My opinion is, Jesus, if it's a house, you have to walk into it and live in it. And what's your view on that? Well, uh, you know, I do think it depends. I, I think that comes along with the old coaster trick. You know the one where you just about to put your coffee cup down and a coaster arrives <laughs> underneath the coffee cup in case you leave a circle on the table? <laughs> And and I find that a bit sort of obsessive. Yes. Uh, and, and, you know, so I might mark a house down because of that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I like you even more because that's my way of thinking. Look, I believe a house is to be lived in. Look, we're not Correct. saying you have to keep it clean and it's, yeah. you know, tidy yeah. and things like that. But it can go the other way completely. I have to say to you, Hugh, if I was asked to take my shoes off, I'd say goodbye. Well, particularly when you take your socks out. <laughs> well, they'd you say know? goodbye. <laughs> you know, the, the old, the old um, you know, the, the, what do you call it, big toe now looking out at you, giving you a nod wink. 
Toad, don't, don't be giving me away me secrets, will you? I tried to hang on to me socks for as long as I can. Never mind putting the toe out. But look, in, in terms of your life and this coming along when it did for you, a new career, a new lease of life, yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and I, I was very lucky the TV likes me and I like it and I love being in front of camera because I don't get put off by it. Mm. Um, and I find it, you know, you can be, you have to be honest. That's what's interesting in front of the camera. If you're not honest, the camera will tell you you're lying. And, you know, you mentioned, uh, just to come back to the way it works, that you see it for the first time, like ourselves when you walk in, and that giddiness and excitement. What about the homeowners themselves? Take Olive and Fergal this evening in mm. County Louth. Do, do they see it for the first time tonight, or do they get feedback before no, now? No, no, no. They see everyone. See, I haven't seen the show. Ah. So, so it's very interesting. I've only, I, I know it's Olive and uh, her husband because I've seen it uh, in, on, on a paper. Yeah, but but I actually haven't seen the show. Mm, there you go. Uh, so it's so we only see the show tonight, and then you're going, and then people have these amazing stories, and you feel like a complete heel <laughs> for having given the house a seven. <laughs> but you look, and you have to be honest and and uh, express I know, that. Yeah, but you know, know when people I know. talk about what happened mm. and circumstances, and you know, uh, their husband who carved the furniture in the house, and you sort of said, well, "I didn't like that." <laughs> I was reading a very interesting slice of life interview with you in one of the papers or magazines lately and they did a Q&A which is just one thing you, you do recognise you're impatient yes so that's good to know you know you, you know you know that and uh, at times it can come across I guess I can be a bit pesky. You can. A bit pesky. But it's like my eights. Everybody was moaning about my eights now on Instagram. <laughs> you know? Listen, do what you do. Keep doing what you're doing. Be what you are. And continue this good. wonderful series. And reminding listeners again, County Loud featured again tonight. Olive and Fergal Wilson's home in County Loud. 8.30. And join in. Enjoy it. And stay with it till the final to find out who will be named Home of the Year on RTE this year. For the moment, Hugh Wallace, thank you. Thank you. Take care, bye. What a brilliant man he is. He's wonderful. And it's a great series and it's so loved. Don't miss it tonight if you're in uh, the North East because we have somebody in there carrying the flag first. Good luck to them. Good luck to the Wilsons tonight. I hope they win and their house is chosen. But it's great to be selected in the shortlist because there are so many vying to be in the... Uh, the uh, Whittledown 21 homes that are visited over these eight weeks on the show. You're with Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. Mike phoned in in relation to Gordon Elliott. We've become a nation uh, of destroyers, destroying people. I think he will be punished. He will be punished. And what he did is wrong. But we have to all move on from this, Jerry. People will be destroyed. Their lives, Gordon's, his employees. Uh, think about this. Uh, and it wasn't a criminal act he was involved in, Jerry. We've got to keep that to the fore of our minds. Thanks indeed, Mike. I'm paraphrasing a long message there you sent into us, but that's the gist of it. If you want to join in the show, comment, say anything, do get in touch with us. 086 1800 658. WhatsApp or text me 1850 if you'd like to call in. You're with Late Lunch on LMFM Radio this Tuesday afternoon. Stay with us because after the break, it's Burke's Banter. 
I'm walking for Slav. 40 days and night. 16-year-old Slav Vavro has been three years battling cancer and his fight goes on. I am walking for him. I've given up alcohol for the 40 days as well. And all I save and uh, I earn for each kilometre I walk, I will be giving to the fund myself come the end of the 40 days and nights. I'll tell you about that and on. You can help too, support Slav. It's quite easy. GoFundMe.com and if you just key in Oxygen for Slav. GoFundMe.com, search Oxygen for Slav. Any euro you give is greatly appreciated. And thank you to everybody who have been contributing and continue to contribute. I am walking away. I had a lovely walk yesterday evening and I'll be out again this evening and I'll be social media posting during the week as well. I've given a rest for a couple of days to keep you up to date with what I'm doing. But thank you in advance for all of your support. Now, what are you doing for the smallies? What am I talking about? The littlies we all wear. Well, especially the girls out there. No pennies. Sure, all four and no knickers has to be the the saying of the moment, is it or isn't it? Well, Sinead Burke brings us her banter and today she is talking about smalls. There are some things you just know. Through nature or nurture or even quite possibly Darwin's theory of evolution, we all have nuggets of knowledge sitting benignly in a comfortable and quiet part of our brain, waiting to be used when needed. You don't know how you came across these tenets of truth, Certainly no one told you, and you absolutely did not go looking for them. But yet, there they are, quiet and content, and confident of the information which they hold, and patiently waiting to be called upon when needed. Bit like elderly people you see sitting on the benches in the shopping centre, unnoticed and unbothered most of the time, yet full of value and wisdom. These, I don't know how I know it, but I just do beliefs, are not rooted in reason or experience. They are less tangible and set than knowing definite things, like the difference between a variable and a fixed-rate mortgage, or that you can't switch from using Calpol under-sixes to Nurofen under-sixes, just because there's none left in the bottle and it's three in the morning. They are two different medicines, they do two different things, and only one of them helps a child sleep. Trust me, that's a sharp lesson you only have to learn once. No, the fantastic facts that I'm talking about won't be tied down by logic or science. They live rogue existences outside of the laws of mathematics and far from the reach of academics. These are the things which we don't know how we know them, we just do. In these times of crisis, we need all the help we can get. So it is in this spirit of solidarity with my fellow man and contributing to the general public good I am going to share with you today one of my own personal, I don't know how I know it, I just do, gems. It will enable you to do a good deed to yourself and it will lift your spirits higher than lepping in front of a Joe Wicks video on YouTube for 20 minutes. Because let's face it, and no harm to him, I think we've all grown a little tired of that carry on. It is this. Wear new pants. I know what you're thinking. What are you on about, Sinead? Sure, Penny's is closed and we can do without the likes of you reminding us. I know Penny's is closed, but you can buy underwear online or even at the supermarket. They don't need to be fancy ones. They don't need frills or lace on them. And they don't need David Beckham's name stitched across the waistband. They can be cotton, silk or even leather if that's your thing. There's no judgment here. You just need to get yourself into a new pair of underpants. Because there is no better feeling. Even if you've been wearing the same tracksuit bottoms since last June, 
and the home haircut hasn't quite worked out and you're currently avoiding making eye contact with the bathroom scales. It all matters not one whit if underneath it all you are sporting brand new knickers. Oh lads, the things we can achieve with this secret little boost. Whether it's cleaning out the messy drawer for once and for all, taking to the roads for a determined embracing walk or even sitting up that little more confident and straight during the work Zoom call. These daily tasks can be fused by the secret self-assurance only a fresh from the package new pair of jocks can give. In fact, and far be it from me to be giving advice to important corporations, but sure I may as well, maybe the positive power of new pants is something they should consider. Health and dental insurance might be the contractual carrots that attract the brightest and the best to work for them. But the addictive high of regularly unwrapping nice new knickers could well be the bonus that keeps them. I am certain it would boost productivity and I think a new knicker impact analysis would certainly spice up any annual report. And do you know, while I think of it, if Stephen Donnelly really wants us to start taking him seriously as the Minister for Health, surely he should get on to Dunn stores and order a new pair of underpants to be sent to every man, woman and child in the country. It will lift national morale significantly and at a time when such a powerful intervention is needed most. So how do we know why new pants have these magical powers? Where are the studies and evidence to back it all up? Well, so far, there is no solid information. And until someone's child decides to explore it as their entry into the Young Scientists exhibition, it will remain as something. Brilliant. Yes, it's Sinead Burke with her banter on late lunch this afternoon. Oh, the power of fresh knickers, there's no doubt about it. And as the years go by, they get bigger, don't they? (laughs) They start off small, they get skinnier and then they grow in size as the years go by. They certainly do. Brilliant observation by our Sinead and she'll be back with more of our banter on late lunch and on Jerry. The nation seems to have accepted Mary Robinson's apology arising from her admitted error relating to the welfare of that young woman. Yes, the Saudi princess. Surely, Jerry, we can offer Gordon Elliot the same forgiveness. That comes in from Morris Veal in Bettystown today. Glad to read it, Morris. Thank you indeed uh, for that nice message there. A World Cup bid. What about that, folks? Ireland. Will we have the World Cup in Ireland 2030? Oh, wouldn't it be marvellous? Yes, these islands uniting. Uniting these islands. Can you believe what I'm saying? In a World Cup bid. Wouldn't it be fantastic to have the World Cup finals here? Oh, God, it's good. Give you give everybody some lift. I don't know where we get the money, but sure, look, we'll worry about that when the time <laughs> comes. And on the soccer front as well, I just see the High Court has ruled that John Delaney's objection to the ODCE uh, having a more detailed look at 4,000 emails and bringing uh, more resources to bear on it has been thrown out. So that will happen now. They'll have a look at those emails. Interesting, interesting. Watch this space. Peter's been on to say, I never heard so much talk, Jerry, about a dead horse. Get real. Homeless people are dying on our streets, says Peter. Thank you indeed for that. Angela's been on to say, I'm just loving Sinead Burke's banter. Brilliant today, Jerry. Thank you, Angela, for that one. And the book, Sean McDonough's book. We spoke to him earlier on. Thought-provoking book, Robot, Robots, Ethics and the Future of Jobs. 
was by Sean McDonough. It's published by Messenger Publications, messenger.ie, if you want to find out more information. Spell Roberts backwards, it's S-T-O-B-O-R, and that book today is going to Anne Byrne. And that's your book today. We'll be in touch to make arrangements. Now, my artist of the week this week is the inimitable Tom Jones, almost 81 years young and looking great when he appeared on Anton Deck last weekend. Let's take up the story during the 60s' halcyon era for hits. Jones recorded a number of film theme songs, including one for James Bond's Thunderball. He won a Grammy in 1966. However, his manager encouraged him to sing material that appealed to a wider audience. So Jones put his stamp on the likes of The Green Green Grass of Home, I'll Never Fall in Love Again and Delilah, which saw his stock continue to rise. He played Las Vegas regularly, became a good friend of Elvis Presley up until Elvis died and starred in an international TV variety show that aired from 69 to 71 and it was worth to Jones at the time $9 million. You know what that is today? Worked it out? $57 million he would have got for that series today. Isn't it some money? The 70s were good to Tom Jones with more hits like She's a Lady, Say You'll Stay Until Tomorrow and The Young New Mexican Puppeteer. Yeah, remember that one well. But for today in musical terms, I want to return to one of those successful film themes with this Tom Jones classic. What's new, pussycat? Whoa, 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 whoa. What's new, pussycat? Whoa, 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 whoa. No. Mr. Tom Jones, featured artist of the week on Late Lunch this week. Brilliant, brilliant song. Oh, he can belt them out, our Tom, can't he? Well, we head to our final break of the afternoon. And from Pussycats on Late Lunch, we're going to be talking next about birds. They'd certainly be the nemesis of our feathered friends, wouldn't they, Pussycats? Yes, they would indeed. I'm joined on the line now by a very good friend of Late Lunch. It's Niall Hatch from Birdwatch Ireland. Hello again, Niall. Hi, how are you doing? Very, very good. Thanks for joining me on the show. Niall, we're going to talk first today about uh, the nesting season and the very important message to get out is hedge cutting is now illegal. Uh, yes, with, with, with some limited exceptions, that's correct, yes. So from the 1st of March, so yesterday, uh, to the 31st of August, under the Wildlife Act, it's against the law to cut hedges, uh, to burn vegetation and so forth as well. Uh, there are obviously uh, some exemptions for things like road safety, for example, quite rightly. Uh, for certain um, a certain kind of uh, agricultural work, it, it, it can be cut in certain circumstances. Uh, but the general rule is, yes, for now, to protect our nesting birds, uh, there's, there's a ban on hedge cutting up until the first of September. And Niall, are they in there already seeking out sites in the hedgerows? They very much are, yes. We've already in Budwatcher and had reports of the first robins of the year already nesting. Now that's very early but uh, this is exactly the time when the birds are deciding where they're going to nest. Many of them will have already fixed exactly where they want to build those nests. Um, they're thinking obviously not just of how it looks now but their, their, their instincts are telling them to plan for how it's going to look in a few weeks' time and then also once the chicks are out and about make sure that there's actually plenty of berries there and insects and all the other things that are needed to support them. So the big danger can be uh, that if, if hedges are destroyed from now on, it pulls the rug out from underneath them. All of a sudden, this secure, wonderful nest site that they thought they had all of a sudden is a, is a liability. And then, of course, once they actually have eggs or chicks in the nest, uh, cutting can badly disturb them. It can destroy the nest or can make them more visible to predators, cause a lot of stress. So it's a very, very good reason that this, uh, these legal provisions are there. 
You mentioned to me, I know before, that robins are territorial. Are like mm. birds, like blackbirds, song thrushes, wrens, pigeons, etc. Do they generally have the same haunt each year? And when their young ones are flushed and they become adults next year, do they stay around the same type of areas? It very much depends on the species. So, so the, yes, most birds are very ter- very territorial at this time of year. So the blackbirds and the, and the thrushes, just like the robins, they, they they want to have a patch to themselves where they're keeping other members of their own species out, apart from their mate and from and from their chicks. With some birds, what will happen is that their their young will disperse after after the breeding season. They mm. might fly a long distance to find a new nesting site, or they may stay quite locally close by. Uh, but one thing's for sure that certainly their parents um, won't, won't tolerate last year's young uh, in their territories this year. They would uh, they would have to move on to a new a new area. So that's uh, that's what's uh, what's happening there. Um, you know where uh, house building is going on, and I live in the north side of Drogheda, and there's five thousand houses to be built. Now you can only imagine the devastation to habitat that's happening there for wildlife. What can people do when they move into new builds or areas like that to help? You know, re-establish some habitat. Uh, yes, it, that, that's something that we can all do with, with new builds and also with, with our existing houses. It's, it's a habitat type that we can all control. We want to make them as, as friendly to wildlife as we can, so try to restore as much of a natural balance as possible. So putting native plants into the garden that will help to attract native insects and help to sort of kickstart that whole ecosystem process again, that's a very good thing to do. Uh, feeding the birds in your garden is another very good thing to do. I know we've spoken about that in the programme several times before. And you get lots of tips about this at birdwatcharland.ie so that can certainly help. There's lots of things you can do there. This is the time of year also to put up nest boxes for the birds. They respond very well to that and obviously uh, when habitat is destroyed the natural nest sites would disappear so especially in the early years when when still waiting for the the vegetation to mature putting up nest boxes can really help a wide range of species so I'd certainly recommend all of those things. And boxes you know generally as a rule of thumb how far off the ground where's the ideal place to situate them Niall? Well, again, it kind of depends on the species. So, so the traditional nest box that are usually used for birds like blue tits and great tits, that plywood box with a, with a, a small hole in the front of it, um, generally the higher you can get those, the better. If you can get them a few metres off the ground, that's great. Um, but I've seen birds use them um, you know, even on a low wall sometimes. The main thing is to make sure that they're sheltered from things like cats and foxes that might, uh, might possibly attack them. Uh, for other birds like robins that use a different type of nest box with a sort of open front on it, and blackbirds would use the same type of box, albeit a bit larger, they prefer them lower down, usually tucked in behind a bush or some ivy with a bit of cover in front of them, whereas the ones that are just in you know, a solid box with a hole can be a bit more exposed, especially if they're up high. So it kind of it depends on the kind of garden you have and what facilities you have. Uh, so, you know, the beggars can't be choosers and the birds will <laughs> often take whatever nest they can get. And directionally wise for the opening, north, south, east, west, any preference there? Um, to be honest, it really doesn't matter too much. I mean, there's a lot talked about that. The main thing is to make sure that um, it's if you can avoid it being in direct sunlight, um, that helps because it can be it can, they can overheat quite easily. But more importantly, you want to make sure that it's sheltered a bit from the rain. So um, obviously in Ireland during the summer, we're going to get a fair amount of rain and that can cause problems for the chicks and the eggs inside the nest. Something you can do to position them in a, sec- in a secluded, sheltered kind of place that's probably more important than the actual direction they're facing in. And feeding them, Nile. when should you stop feeding? A friend of mine was saying, oh, when it comes into March, April, now ease off on the feed. You certainly can ease off at this time of year. To be honest, um, the birds will naturally do that themselves. They really only use the food that we put out on bird tables and in feeders to supplement their diet, except in very extreme cold conditions. Uh, so they're kind of weaning themselves off that a bit at the moment. Having said that, there's no harm in continuing to feed during the summer, especially if you have a big enough garden that the feeders aren't near where the nest boxes are, uh, because that can lead to a bit of conflict. Uh, but um, if you can do that, then you can continue feeding during the summer. But the most important time to do it would be uh, back in the autumn, maybe from September, October onwards, and then 
and particularly during the cold months of, of the winter. Um, March, of course, uh, traditionally can be a very cold month in Ireland, so I certainly wouldn't stop just yet. I think the birds still, still need, do still need that help. And I wouldn't be surprised in the next few weeks if we do have some sub-zero temperatures, you know, that being the nature of our climate, it uh, could well happen. So the birds do need the boost. Uh, the bird survey, another resounding success for you again. And I've been keeping a good eye myself in my wee back garden and I've seen blackbirds, wren, uh, the wood pigeons. Of course, you have the crow family as well and the starlings. There's plenty of those boys about their nesting in my faces. I actually love to have them there as well. But I have wagtails and I'll tell you what I saw, Niall, and I was thrilled to see them again. And uh, a few of them actually, song thrush, they're back. I love to see them. Ah yes, the songsters is one of my favourites as well and uh, they're starting to, to, to get into fine voice now. They're one of the first birds to start singing in the springtime because most birds just sing in the spring and the summer so they've been silent all winter uh, with the exception of the robin which sings year round. Uh, the song thrushes, I'm hearing them now in my own house here in, in County Wicklow, I'm hearing them in the mornings. They, they have this very sort of strident piercing kind of song and they would repeat their musical phrases. That's the way you identify it. It is great to have them around. The song thrush of course is a real gardener's friend because their favourite food are snails so so if you have a snail problem in your garden, certainly having song thrushes in will, will, will be something you'd be welcome. They're very welcome to my garden with my raised beds, etc., for sure. Now, just as an aside, and I know it's a little early yet to talk cuckoo or the migratory birds coming from Africa, but a friend of mine, Declan, was very curious. He hears you on another radio station talking about swifts, and he couldn't believe, and I know you've spoken to me about this in the past, that they rarely sleep. Would you explain that again about the swift in particular? Do they ever sleep? They do, as far as we can tell. But 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 swifts they live life a very extreme life, and it's very alien to the to the world that we know. Uh, because swifts almost never stop flying. Uh, so as far as we know, they do sleep on the wing. They probably only need about an hour's sleep per night, maybe less. They need less than we do. But what they can do is they can actually um, switch one side of their brain off, send that to sleep while the other side's awake, so they can continue flying when they're asleep. They're still partially alert. Uh, but the, the swift is a migrant bird that breeds in in urban areas, particularly, uh, and they're one of the last migrants. To to return to us um, they usually arrive back to us in May after you know, long after the swallows and the others, others have come back but the amazing thing is that they're also one of the first things birds to leave us so last August they will have left towns and cities all over Ireland they will have headed to Africa and since that time since they left their nests last August they won't have landed they'll have been flying constantly and they won't land again until they return to us here in Ireland and go back into their nest sites in the roofs they nest inside roofs and in tall buildings um, so it's amazing so they, they haven't landed so it just shows you they're absolutely remarkable birds and what a privilege it is for us to have such a wonderful creature here in Ireland. So they really do spend virtually their whole lives on the wing bar they have a clutch and uh, that has to be incubated or whatever. That's it. Yes, that's that's literally it. Yes, exactly. They can't carry their eggs with them. They have to lay them somewhere and then the chicks for the first few weeks, they're not able to fly. Um, so they they have to stay in the nest. So th- that's that's the only time that the parents will land. Uh, and then, of course, once the chicks have left the nest, they head off to Africa. Uh, the parents follow follow behind them shortly afterwards. And those chicks, before they reach maturity, it might take them a, a couple of years. So maybe for three years, those chicks won't land again. And it's really only the breeding and, and the fact that their eggs still tie them to solid ground that they still have to land. Everything else is done on the wing. They feed on the they catch small flies and mosquitoes and things. Uh, they don't need to drink. All the moisture that they need is in the bodies of the insects that they eat. Uh, they sleep on the wing. They mate on the wing. They're absolutely remarkable.
Mm, I'm thinking about that half brain and half brain scenario. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if we could do that as human beings? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> It'd be a real advantage. But in a general sense, a wonderful time of the year just before we finish to uh, watch out for the birds, see the breeding starting, the whole breeding season and keep an eye for what still arrives to your garden or if you're out in the countryside. It's a wonderful time, now this time of the year. Oh, it is. It's, as a bird watcher, it's one of the most exciting times because we still have our winter migrants with us at the moment. They'll be leaving us soon those ducks and swans and geese and wading birds we're heading back to the far north where they where they would nest and uh, you know there's a transition period where while that's happening we have the spring migrants starting to come in so you know usually around st patrick's day i'm watching out for my first sand martins uh, sandwich turns uh, wheat ears of the year and um, they'll all be coming in soon and then the, not long after that the swallows and the willow warblers and all the others come in so it's really exciting uh, and it's certainly a time you know it's been it's been really interesting with 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 them um, with with the covid situation so many more people have turned to nature I think we've seen Birdwatch Ireland membership really spiking now. A lot of new, not new people coming to us. This will be the first spring for a lot of people as birdwatchers. We're really excited about that, and we're really hoping people will enjoy it. And if people are looking for information on the birds they could see over the next few weeks or how they can report them to us, you can visit our website. It's birdwatchireland.ie. We also have a special project. We're asking people to monitor their first swift swallows, cuckoos, and sand martins of the year, and to report them to a website called springalive.net. And it's a very child-friendly one. It's a great, pro- lot of projects there for children. Um, so if people could check out Spring Alive life.net and birdwatcherland.ie would be most grateful do that you love it I'm a member of Birdwatch myself it's wonderful they send you publications there's so much information all online they have a wonderful shop there I recommend it highly as a gift to anyone to a child for a birthday or anything like that it's tremendous we'll be back to you to talk about the cuckoo and those birds arriving uh, in a few weeks time thanks indeed again Niall for joining me today thanks a million Take care of yourself. The brilliant Nile Hatch there from Birdwatch Ireland. That's a lot on uh, this busy late lunch this Tuesday afternoon. Coming up tomorrow, we're talking to a uh, Dundalk man who uh, emigrated to Italy 20 years ago. Tommy is having a chat with us on the show tomorrow afternoon. Also, uh, that wildlife hospital opened uh, recently in Navin, and uh, there's a lot of good work going on there. We'll be touching on that as well and more besides on the show. Eddie Caffrey's coming next with the drive to hours of wonderful music ahead stay with us here on lmfm radio but until tomorrow midweek wednesday 1 30 take care of yourselves see you then the late lunch with blackstone motors strahada dundalk and cavan our service departments are open with all hsc and government guidelines in place to keep you and our staff safe sales are click and deliver only through our website blackstonemotors.ie stay safe from blackstone motors It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. 
Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.